You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. LVMH, Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton, is the biggest and most successful luxury goods conglomerate in the world. Home to 75-plus iconic maisons across six different business sectors, LVMH has created a constellation of iconic luxury brands including Louis Vuitton, Bulgari, Dior, Fendi, Marc Jacobs, Tiffany & Company, and Sephora, just to name a few. At the helm of LVMH is Chairman and CEO Bernard Arnault. Both LVMH and Mr. Arnault have an indelible imprint on the luxury industry on account of the sheer scale of the company's acquisitions and continuing profitability. In fact, 2022 marked another record-setting year for LVMH. My guest on the luxury item is Anish Melwani, Chairman and CEO of LVMH for North America. In this role, he oversees and coordinates the activities of the LVMH group across 75-plus maisons. Mr. Melwani sits on the board of directors for Fresh, Marc Jacobs, Colgan Sellers, Starboard Cruise Services, and Tiffany & Company. Prior to joining LVMH in 2015, he was a senior partner in the New York office of McKinsey & Company, where he co-led the global strategy and corporate finance practice and supported clients across industries. Mr. Melwani is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the board of the United Way of New York City, where he serves on the marketing committee, and the National Retail Federation's board of directors. Welcome to the luxury item, Anish. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So you joined LVMH as chairman and CEO of North America in 2015, came from McKinsey, where you were a senior partner, and you really came on board at a really interesting time, for the, especially for the global luxury goods market. You know, you had Brexit, the U.S. presidential election, and terrorism all led to the significant uncertainty and lower consumer confidence, hindering sales of personal luxury goods. The U.S. market was further tested with the impact of the pandemic but its resilience has been greater than many originally even expected. So since joining LVMH and seeing the cultural shifts and all these changes that have been going on in the business landscape, how has the relationship between luxury and the U.S. consumer evolved? Um, Well, Scott, look, it's been been a fascinating period and uh, certainly a a tremendous education for me personally. Um, One of the things that I learned when I joined uh, the group is from some of our leaders in Paris, is that um, they they viewed the U.S. as an emerging market for luxury. And and what I mean by that is um, if you look at the cultural penetration of luxury in the U.S., it's still significantly lower than it is in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, most luxury brands are European, and so the kind of of cultural traditions, um, you know, a, uh, a mother giving her, her teenage daughter her first fine fragrance is, is something I've heard about as a, a real tradition in many European countries. Um, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of gifts you might give for, uh, for a graduation, uh, you know, a, a briefcase for, for someone's new professional uh, career. Um, those are traditions that, is, that have been part of uh, culture in Europe for generations um, that simply aren't here. And uh, what I've observed is, you know, through a, through a number of forces, um, uh, one of which you know, was was certainly COVID, and when people had uh, a lot of free time on their hands, is we've seen the American consumer get more engaged with different aspects of luxury. And uh, you know, I still think we have a long way to go, but we've seen some of the benefits of that um, 
uh, of that uh, penetration. To give you a sense, uh, the U.S. Um, was about 23% of uh, LVMH's global sales in 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, this past year, it was about 27%. So we've seen that increase in terms of our, uh, our region's share of the, of the global pie. A couple of months ago, LVMH announced that it delivered a second straight year of record sales and profits. Congratulations on that. Uh, LVMH owner Bernard Arnault said that LVMH was going into this year with confidence, despite the uncertainties weighing on the global economy. And he believed LVMH could continue growing as it did in 2022. So what's driving that confidence? Well, I think um, the the confidence uh, of Mr. Arnault comes... Um, First, because he's a uh, he's an incredibly confident person and has always been his uh, his you know, whole career. Um, but but also, you know, we have I think one of the more more extraordinarily well balanced portfolios across our 75, 76 maisons um, uh, in terms of the the uh, parts of a luxury lifestyle that we participate in. And so we aren't as exposed to a a single business cycle as uh, as many companies would be. So. You know um, what I've learned is that the the wines and spirits cycle operates quite differently from the beauty cycle, uh, which in and of itself is different from the, the fashion and leather goods. And one major one that we've seen uh, in these last few years is the hospitality cycle is totally different. Right, right now we're seeing uh, a shift in share of wallet uh, from from products to experiences um, that was happening pre-COVID. It obviously got put on hold during COVID. And uh, is now coming back in a very strong way. And so, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, our, our confidence as a group is that um, we do have this balanced and diversified portfolio across the, the luxury spectrum. And we have these, in, these teams in each of our maisons who are working every day to build the desirability of their uh, products and offerings with customers. And... Um, you know, however the uh, the immediate cycle in the, in the given industry works out, we uh, we should be okay. So, following a period of strong sales, there are already signs that the U.S. luxury market is slowing. Department stores have already started to report weaker sales, and a number of luxury brands have reported slowing growth. And while LVMH's revenue grew in Q4 2022, it wasn't at the same breakneck pace as earlier in the year. In fact, Saks just released a study that said a lower percentage of luxury shoppers will spend the same or more on luxury goods in the next three months. So while the economic outlook is hard to predict, do you think the luxury category, once again, is muscular enough to remain insulated from economic turbulence? I guess I would say that we see that our group, um, in part because of the diversification I just mentioned, we'll have some insulation. At the end of the day, we're participants in, in the global economy and, uh, and we, will, we are certainly subject to economic cycles. But you know, if, you, if you take a step back, um, what, uh, what Saks Fifth Avenue was talking about is basically fashion and leather goods. That's the, that's the, the sector that they mainly participate in. Um, and when you consider the price point of luxury in that part of the, uh, of the business, um, and you have a lot of economic uncertainty. You have, you know, layoffs that are not actually very, um, very uh, broad, but they're widespread. As in, lots of companies have been laying off some of their people. You know, the effect on people's confidence is much broader than it's the actual effect of people losing their jobs. Um, but that can certainly cause people to uh, consider delaying uh, a significant purchase. 
Um, on the other hand, you know, what we're finding is that uh, in these stressful economic times, people are turning to some of the uh, quote unquote affordable luxuries that give them uh, a sense of satisfaction and, and happiness, uh, like our beauty products. And we're seeing, uh, again, not just in our business, but across the category, beauty category is doing very well, our Sephora business doing very well. Um, you know, and, uh, and again, you know, we've seen different trends in, in wines and spirits, but not a fundamental, uh, reduction in, in, in consumption. Right. Um, so, uh, I do think that, um, we are, we are relatively well positioned and, you know, there may be some shifts in where people, uh, choose to spend. Um, but that's, that's nothing new. Yeah. Cause the data is showing that aspirational luxury buyers are already cutting back in the U S and spending among the wealthiest 2% of global consumers who together, I think, account for like 40% of luxury spending is still strong. And it seems like competition for those top spenders is just going to intensify this year. So if that's the case, do you see LVMH and its maisons amping up marketing efforts to this narrower set of customers? Well, well first, I'm not sure that, um, that that competition could get any more intense than it already is, right? <laughs> Um, but, but I, I think, um, you know, it's interesting, Scott, I get pitched every year by a number of groups, various groups who have an incredible opportunity for us to, uh, where they've gathered a group of people who would be in that, you know, wealthiest 2% and they are offering us the incredible opportunity to give away our products to them for free. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my reaction is, is kind of your reaction, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, first of all, uh, if you, if we want to build desirability, giving away products is usually not a very good way to convince people that that's uh, something that, uh, they, they should be paying for. Um, but more importantly, it, it, it misunderstands the, um, the, the mechanics, uh, and psychology of desirability. And at the end of the day, uh, the way you, you, um, uh, you build desirability is by, uh, building cultural relevance of the brands and the products. And that requires a combination of creativity uh, uh, paired with the the heritage that uh, and 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 his you know storytelling uh, uh, history of our uh, of our maisons. So you know uh, we are absolutely going to continue to do that. Um, and I would also say that you know uh, the um, the data has shown that uh, Put aside socioeconomics for a second, uh, age matters a lot. So you find that even though young people may be not very well represented in that top 2%, they are often the people who the wealthier, older customers look to for what is cool, what is relevant. And so, you know, uh, I would say that our philosophy is, is not to over market to any one particular group, but to make sure that we are driving that cultural relevance, which then drives desirability. And when you have that, uh, then then the people who have the assets and, and are open to spend, you know, they 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 come along. Yeah, and the world's luxury goods giants raised their prices on handbags, clothes, shoes, and jewelry last year in order to maintain these margins and face little resistance from shoppers. You know, prices of core handbags from brands like Louis Vuitton increased double-digit percentages or more in the past two years. And I think UBS estimated luxury labels raised their prices by 8% on average in 2022. Is the price increase trend going to continue this year? 
Well, look, first of all, each of our maisons, you know, uh, manages its own pricing. And again, I would tell you, if you look across the uh, the balance of our portfolio, those numbers may be true in, in fashion and leather goods. I don't think you, uh, I think you'd see lower numbers in, uh, in, in beauty and in wines and spirits and in other areas. Um, but I think the, the, the reality is, first of all, we are not immune uh, to inflation on our supply side and, uh, and in, our, in our workforce, our, our colleagues. Um, so there are inflationary pressures. Um, but uh, as those attenuate, you know, we, we'd expect uh, uh, price increases to, to also return to more historical levels um, as well. But, um, you know, could, it, could we see further price increases in 2023 in some categories? Sure. A couple of months ago, you participated in a fireside chat at NRF 2023, retail's big show. You were talking about the resilience of luxury and that it's connected to our identity. You said, quote, once you adopt luxury, once you start wearing luxury as part of your identity, most people don't want to go backwards. What's the emotional stickiness that luxury has that grips consumers in tumultuous times? Look, I, this goes to my core uh, belief that um, the the luxury industry is grounded in the human emotion of accomplishment. Um, you, you know, luxury products are products that there is always a less expensive alternative that would be functionally equivalent, whether it's a tote bag or a lipstick or a, or a bottle of wine, a bottle of champagne, uh, a hotel room. Right. There's the difference between a luxury product uh, and a and a uh, more mass market product from a functional perspective would be uh, would be relatively limited. So uh, luxury exists because of the quality, the craftsmanship, the storytelling uh, and the and the image, the cultural relevance that is transmitted through that that piece to the person who, who purchases it. And so the reason for my comment uh, that day was to say, you know, if um, if you have reached a place of accomplishment in your life uh, where and you are choosing to um, to express that as part of your identity with your whether it's your clothes or your handbag or or uh, or your fragrance uh, or the champagne you choose at a restaurant, um, you know, that, uh, you know, to to pull back from that is uh, implicitly uh uh, you know, uh, can feel like you are becoming less accomplished. And that's something which, of course, there are times when that that can happen. Um, but it's not something that I believe uh, people want to do. It doesn't feel great to do that. And so, uh, you know, I think that uh, it's that it's that feeling of personal accomplishment and how you choose to express that to other people that I think is uh, is uh, is a bit sticky. So I wanted to talk to you about the role of the physical store. You know, as e-commerce growth normalizes after its pandemic boom, luxury shoppers have made it clear that although they still value online channels, they also want brick and mortar experiences. The rumors of the final death of physical retail obviously was greatly exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing luxury brands respond to the demand for expensive handbags and clothes by expanding their retail presence across the U.S. and not you know, and looking beyond just the, the the tier one cities, how has the rapid digitalization of commerce transforming the role of the physical store at LVMH's brands? Well, look, I, I think um, I think I would answer that a little bit with a little bit of a slight uh, different angle, which is to say, what digital has done is 
broaden and fragmented the pathways of discovery. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you go back, and I'm, this is before I entered the industry, so I rely on people who have, uh, have been here for a lot longer than I have. People tell me, you know, you go back 20, 30 years ago, the way you discovered what was new in fashion or luxury is you walked into Bloomingdale's or Bergdorf Goodman or Saks Fifth Avenue if you're here in New York. If you were in Dallas, you walked into Neiman Marcus. And what you saw there was your first point of discovery. Maybe if you were really into fashion and luxury, you subscribed to Vogue or uh, uh, Harper's Bazaar or any of the number uh, the major uh, magazines, and you flipped through those pages and you discovered it that way, right? Um, with with the with the role of digital and e-commerce, um, there are now many many pathways that people can discover uh, luxury. Uh, they can discover it through influencers, you know, real sort of professional influencers. They can discover it through their friends who influence them through their social media feeds. They can discover it through our own websites. Uh, and they can actually, because of the e-commerce platforms, they can actually see the entire assortment. They can see it in 3D in some cases. They can spin it around, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we found is that um, digitization of commerce in general has uh, has expanded the reach of uh, of product discovery and uh, and storytelling. Um, on the other hand, that's only enhanced uh, and increased the demand for our physical presence because at the end of the day, particularly if you're in fashion and leather goods or watches and jewelry, you know for for ninety plus percent of our customers, this is a significant purchase for them. It's something that's a very considered purchase. And they want to see it in person. They want to try it on. They want to um, uh, see how it how it sits across. Uh, you know, if it's a crossbody bag, how does it sit uh, on their hip? And um, you know, th- those experiences can only happen uh, convincingly these days. I think there's obviously technology to evolve this, but those can only happen in the physical world. So, you know, to a point you said about going beyond tier one cities, I think that as uh, the internet and digital technologies have expanded the reach of discovery. It's grown uh, desirability for luxury products, ours and, and others, and that's made it uh, more viable for us to have uh, freestanding stores uh, in in markets, uh, uh, be it uh, Nashville, Austin, uh, uh, Scottsdale, you know, where uh, where where there might not have been sufficient demand before to to justify those economics. So while we're talking about physical stores, you know, many retailers are starting to take a much broader and more thorough picture of the true impact that stores have are having beyond just profit and foot traffic alone. They're starting to put metrics against consumer impact. Customer impact takes into consideration customer service, how engaging the store's designs are, layout, you know, and the overall experience that customers have when they visit the store. And we know Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior, Tiffany, and others are great at delivering brand impact at their boutiques. But are they also measuring the impact the store has on the overall customer experience? Oh, sure. Uh, in fact, I would argue that um, uh, the luxury industry was probably uh, you know, some of the pioneers in really thinking about the retail experience as a 360 customer experience, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're the ones who... Uh, who greet guests with a glass of champagne? Uh, we we design our stores with with sitting areas uh, where you can uh, where you can relax and uh, and sit with your friends while you're shopping. Uh, we have uh, most of our stores, especially our flagships, have 
one or more VIP salons where you can have a very private experience. So, you know, the 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 luxury experience uh, is is uh, compared to other retail is much less transactional and is in fact focused on the overall customer experience. Um, because first of all, it takes time to do the storytelling uh, in order to uh, uh, you know uh, have the client to be comfortable with the with the purchase with the as I said a, a highly considered purchase that they're making. And because it's those relationships that um, that get that with not only with the immediate uh, client advisor you're talking to, but also with the brand that develop over time that are really the um, you know the uh, the path to success in uh, in luxury. And you were talking about younger consumers before, and luxury shoppers are getting wealthier and younger with purchases by some of the newest consumers expected to grow three times faster than older generations over the next decade. Bain predicts spending by Gen Z and the even younger generation alpha that's under 13 will make up a third of the luxury market by 2030. Do you see future generations, whether in Europe or Asia or America, having the same attitudes about luxury as your current customers? You know, it's interesting, Scott. I think a couple, um, th- there's a couple things that we are seeing um, that are similar. In, in fact, um, you know, the youngest customers because they're, they tend to be more focused on things like sustainability and uh, uh, and even traceability uh, of you know raw materials and and have making sure that things were ethically sourced and produced. They are less interested in in the fast fashion concepts and more interested in uh, things that are made well uh, with traditional methods, which is really what what luxury is all about. So. We, we almost see uh, the youngest generations kind of moving back to some of the values that were more common, perhaps, you know, two generations before. Um, but again, as I said before, the, the main thing that really drives desirability is, um, is a combination of quality uh, and cultural relevance. And so where, where that comes into play is, you know, what is culturally relevant for a Gen Z or, as you say, an alpha um, is is really the, the the question that you know we have to figure out right and how to um how to create that relevance but without pandering to them um because at the end of the day obviously you're not selling uh, cognac to 13 year olds uh so it's got to be done in an appropriate way and in a way that is genuinely authentic so that it fits because if it if it if you try to reach them even if you're trying to reach them through the right social media channels or the right celebrities but it isn't authentic it, it comes across very quickly as pandering. And that's, uh, that's, that's never a good thing. So do you think social media will play an even bigger role in driving luxury sales among these younger audiences? I, I mean, again, it's a little bit like uh, one of your questions before. I'm not sure it could play a bigger role. At this point, um, you know, uh, social media is media for, for many people uh, and not just the younger ones, right? Um, so... Uh, I think social media is incredibly important. I think, uh, you know, which platforms are relevant for which audiences is something that is uh, always evolving, right? Three years ago, I was talking about TikTok and people were, you know, wondering what I was, you know, what were we talking about? And right. now it's so prevalent that we're thinking about banning it in this country. Right. So, so you know, uh, you know, which social media platform? Who knows? And I'm, in fact, I would almost say it's certain that it will it will continue to evolve, and there may be a platform five years from now that we haven't even talked about uh, until today. Um, but but I think the reality is social media is media uh, for for much of the audience today. 
LVMH is known for its decentralized structure that lets each of the Maisons independently do the heavy lifting. You encourage the Maisons to compete with each other to drive innovation and creativity. And on paper, it's not the most efficient way to run a, a large conglomerate. But in LVMH's cases, it's one of these, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Can you talk about how the business and creative leaders of each Maison work together to create desire for the brand, as you were talking about before, while still delivering a strong business performance? Yeah, look, I think um, this is, uh, if if anything, this is the kind of secret sauce, um, except I don't necessarily know the whole secret yet uh, as a (laughs) a corporate guy. Um, But, you know, when I, when I, I remember uh, talking with uh, Cindy Toledano, who, um, is the chairman of our fashion division and and previously was the CEO of uh, Christian Dior Couture for many years. And he referred to this as the dance, right? Um, the dance between the, the business leader and the creative director um, to, uh, to uh, first um, expose the creative director to all that the house has to offer in terms of its heritage and its DNA through its archives through um, uh, you know historical pieces, uh, et cetera, and then to work with uh, and and sort of um, shape together with the creative director what are going to be those offerings, uh, those products or or experiences that are going to really blow people's mind. And you know, I, I love the way that uh, Mr. Arnault has described this uh, publicly a few times when he talks about desirability when it comes in luxuries. He says it's about making products that you didn't know existed one day, and then the next day after you've seen them, you can't live without them. And uh, so I, I honestly can't tell you exactly how it's done because I, I'm not, uh, you know, that, that's not my uh, place in the organization. But I can tell you that uh, when it works, it, um, you know, it's where these, these, uh, these trends, these viral moments come from. So more luxury brands are fervently implementing blockchain technology into its businesses thanks to its effectiveness in tracking and trading luxury goods. A couple of years ago, LVMH, Richemont, and Prada joined forces to launch a blockchain consortium to help luxury shoppers authenticate their goods. And I know you're close to this. Can you give an update on what's going on with the Aura Blockchain Consortium? Sure. So, um, well, the consortium, as you mentioned, was started by LVMH with Prada and uh, and Cartier of Richemont. Uh, we've since added as founding members the OTB Group, which is uh, Diesel and Maison Margiela, and uh, Mercedes-Benz joined uh, last summer. Um, and all of us as founding members share the ambition of developing the applications of blockchain technology that uh, that that actually raise the standards of luxury. You know, I think the um, the the focus. Um, for, for the moment, for the most part, is around uh, traceability and, uh, and and authenticity, right? How do we, uh, so for example, um, uh, our Louis Vuitton brand, which is actually the brand that incubated the Aura project initially uh, some years ago, um, has created a line of jewelry, a line of diamond jewelry, where every diamond comes with an Aura certificate, a digital certificate. And that has all the information you might expect from a GI, you know, sort of a GIA or a gemological certificate about the color, cut, and clarity, weight, et cetera, of the of the diamond. Um, but it also uh, contains the path that that diamond took all the way back to the mine where it came from. So, which mine did it come out of? Where was it sent for for cutting and polishing? How did it get to Louis Vuitton, et cetera? And you know, uh, this is something that um, we believe. Uh, helps to differentiate 
true luxury brands, right, which have uh, that that can, that uh, vertical integration and that understanding of their supply chain all the way back to its uh, original sources, so that we can say with confidence to our clients that you are buying a product that has not been tainted in any way, either by uh, unethical practices or uh, or unsustainable practices. And so, you know, we're we're currently working uh, on on. Uh, rolling out more applications of that and working with the other members of the uh, of the consortium to figure out what are those things that are going to help set uh, luxury apart in an, uh, in a concrete way and how did the blockchain technologies help us do that so while we're on the virtual topic i want to talk about web3 and metaverse efforts at lvmh now, millions of people are spending their time in immersive interconnected digital environments you know, there are people who place as much, if not more, value on their digital wardrobes as their physical ones. And the metaverse has transformed the fashion industry in the past two years, whether it's selling character skins on Fortnite or launching digital clothing collections or setting up shop with virtual events and exclusive drops. And luxury brands have rushed into this new and hugely popular space to engage with potential new customers. Mr. Arnaud has stated in the past about being cautious of a metaverse bubble. What has been LVMH's approach to the metaverse and how do you decide which brands in the portfolio are best suited for this emerging environment? Well, first, I think um, the, the first point is the Maisons are the ones who decide what makes sense for them, as opposed to the group telling them where to go. Um, but I think the principle that Mr. Arnaud spoke about, um, which is that, you know, I believe his, his words were something to the effect of we're, we're not interested in selling uh, $10 digital sneakers. Um, re reflects the, the core kind of belief underneath uh, the group's uh, thinking on this, which is to say, um, you know, as you said, Scott, you know, metaverses uh, are places where people express themselves digitally and they have an identity. And, uh, you know, to the extent that luxury brands or luxury products are part of your identity in the physical world, we believe that that's something you may want to express in your identity in a virtual world, um, and you should be able to, right? So one of the things that we're looking at uh, and testing right now are ways to create digital twins of products that you, if you buy it in the in the physical world, you're able to have your avatar uh, wear or carry that same product or a, a representation of that product in a in a virtual world or a metaverse. Um, and by the way, you know the metaverse term is new, but uh, uh, a large chunk of the of the of the population has been calling them video games for a long right. time, and have been buying you know virtual products in, in video games for for decades. So this isn't quite as new as as, as some might uh, might uh, portray it. I think on the other hand, the um, the other thing that is coming with this, uh, which is exists in the gaming world, but I think is expanding beyond is this idea of not just um, virtual identity, but virtual communities. And, you know, we have, um, we have a number of Maisons that are looking to, uh, to find ways to work with, to, to access those communities in order, in an authentic way, in order to build desirability. Um, so, for example, a few years ago, Louis Vuitton uh, uh, partnered with the uh, League of Legends uh, game for their annual uh, tournament. And, you know, they... Um, uh, they designed some clothing uh, that was for you know virtual skins that were specific for the tournament, but they also partnered with them to make the uh, carrying case for the trophy at the end of the tournament, and that's something that Louis Vuitton does for the French Open. They did it for the World Cup. 
they did it for the uh, for the NBA. You know, so so it, it was something which basically uh, recognized that esports tournaments are sporting tournaments and they matter to a large number of people, and therefore the you know the ultimate trophy in in an esport should be treated just as preciously as. Uh, as in a, a physical uh, tournament. Um, you know, in another example, uh, our Hennessy Maison uh, created a, a Web3 partnership with the, the Friends with Benefits DAO. And uh, they've created something called Cafe 11, which is a, a, a sort of a Web3 cultural social club. Uh, and it's a community of about 3,000 creatives uh, that uh, that are connected through uh, this, this um these tokens and uh, and you know and and engage with Hennessy and with each other uh, as um, as part of their community. So you know we're still uh, as we move into those areas, we're still very early days, uh, and our maisons are, are are experimenting, but again, always making sure that they are um, staying true to the principles of luxury and the principles of their own uh, heritage and DNA. LVMH had several M&A deals in the past couple of years across divisions. They acquired a majority stake in a tannery, a minority stake in a leather and suede manufacturer, and acquired Joseph Phelps Vineyards. What is your main driver when you contemplate acquisitions? Do you see any gaps in the current portfolio of brands or any areas you wish to get into that you aren't now? What I'd say is that um, in my conversations with Mr. Arnaud and our senior leadership, um, it's never uh, really been about gaps. I would say that you know, hospitality was an area that we experimented with and got into with for over a decade ago with the Cheval Blanc hotels. We have a partnership with um, used to be Ritz Carlton, now it's Marriott International for the Bulgari hotels, where, which actually are operated by Marriott. Um, but you know, the the Belmont acquisition reflected a belief that that was an area that we thought was going to be an attractive one, would be a good fit for our group. And then, you know, and of all the assets that were out there in the in the luxury hospitality space, Belmont was uh, was by far the best uh, best fit for us. Um, so I would say it's it's less about conversations we have about gaps, um, whereas Mr. Arnaud always says that um, when we're when we're looking to make an acquisition, it should be a brand that has the potential to be here and be relevant 100 years from now. And those those brands are not common, right? They're, those don't uh, grow on trees. And so I would say that it's a bit more uh, opportunistic in the sense that if we were to if we were to find a brand that uh, was actionable, and that we, there was enough conviction, had that kind of potential, that kind of uh, richness of its of its uh, origin story, its 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 heritage, even if that heritage was relatively nascent, um, that uh, that that you know that's the uh, the the thing that we're looking for. And you were talking about luxury hospitality and LVMH controls three international luxury hotel groups. It's been steadily expanding its portfolio. What is the group's strategic approach to luxury hospitality and how does it nurture collaborations with other LVMH brands? So, you know, I think that the, the approach is, is specific to each maison. So the Bulgari approach is really done together with the folks at Marriott and you know, is aiming to be in uh, the, the the top cities um, where there is uh, that uh, that that luxury clientele. So uh, they've got a beautiful property in Paris and Milan, uh, and they've got plans to open in a number of other cities, uh, you know, around the world. 
Um, Cheval Blanc is really the the creme de la creme of uh, of, of hospitality. Uh, we only have five properties right now around the world. We're in the process of trying to develop our sixth one in uh, in Beverly Hills. Um, and you know, those we, we don't know exactly how many we'll have at the end of the day, but um, I, I don't think it's going to be a very large number of Cheval Blancs. They really uh, are are to be in the kind of iconic uh, locations around the world. Um, uh, that uh, that that fit the the savoir faire of that uh, maison. Um, on the other hand, Belmond is uh, is all about the journey. You know, Belmond has about fifty assets, which include thirty um, something hotels, but we also have uh, a number of trains and uh, and uh, river boats uh, for for sort of uh, uh, river cruising. And so, you know, the the uh, expansion uh, there is uh, again into also iconic places, but but not really a, a downtown like Los Angeles or Miami. You know, uh, more likely to see Belmont's expansion in places like South America, perhaps uh, Australasia. Um, you know, where there are incredible places where the where Belmont can can enhance uh, not only the the experience there, but also the journey uh, to get there. Um, as far as collaborations with other other LVMH brands, you know, we we have a very strict rule. Collaborations are entirely uh, only happen when they're win-wins. Right. Uh, so no brand is ever forced to work with another brand. Um, and we find that you get the best collaborations when both brands are approaching it with openness and creativity, but are also being fiercely protective of their brand. And when you have both brands being super protective of their own DNA and their own authenticity, that's when you get something cool that comes out. 2022 was full of milestones for an industry working on sustainability. More luxury brands have set climate targets than ever. You know, alternative materials are on the rise and resale has really gone mainstream. LVMH has been recognized for high ranks in the sustainability area. What are a few items on your top line sustainability agenda for 2023? Well, you know, LVMH was an early um, uh, pioneer in the in the field of environmental policy. We've had one for uh, over 30 years. And, you know, for us, uh, it's it's actually not just a sort of CSR obligation. It's actually a, uh, it's an existential uh, issue for some of our businesses. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, we make products that, uh, that grow, right? We make, uh, we make champagne and wine from grapes. We make uh, perfumes from, from real flowers that grow in fields that we, we own or control. And uh, if the climate changes too much, you won't get the same quality out of those same fields. Uh, and we can't uh, we can't grow champagne anywhere else but in champagne. So you know this is really a, this is this, these issues uh, are existential for us in some ways. And so you know our um, we have our strategy we call Life Three Hundred and Sixty, uh, and uh, they are around uh, protecting biodiversity. Uh, fighting climate change, of course, uh, focused on on CO two, which is everything from the the product manufacturing all the way through to the transportation procurement, and then in our stores, and and moving all those to uh, to green energy. Thinking through how we can uh, make better use of our unsold products, or uh, or what we call dead stocks, you know, uh, raw materials that we don't use use up in our manufacturing to promote a circular economy, um, and then frankly, transparency. Right. Um, it goes back to the conversation we had about Aura. You know, we believe that uh, we do the right things. We spend a lot of time, money, and energy to do the right things, and we want to make sure our clients uh, can see what we're doing. 
So Anish, my final question, which I ask all my guests, is the luxury item question. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what would that one single luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service. You can call somebody to get you off that island. So you're just stranded on this island with palm trees, sand, and miles and miles of ocean. What would that one luxury item you would want to have with you? You know, I think I think it has to be a pair of Louis Vuitton sunglasses because it's uh, it's going to be sunny. And if I got <laughs> if I got to pair it, I would I would bring some some SPF product from Fresh. Anish Melwani, Chairman and CEO of LVMH for North America. Thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.